Welcome to Data Skeptic. Data Skeptic brings you discussions about how data is changing our world. Our interviews are conversations with thought leaders in topics like data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. To me, the brain is one of at least the top 10 most fascinating things I can think of. It's this amazing machine, but in some sense, we have a lot more to learn about it. Last week on Data Skeptic, we visited the Loney Laboratory of Neuroimaging at USC and learned about their Loney Pipeline. It's a data-driven platform that enables scientists from all over the world to share, transform, store, manage, and analyze their data sets. A major focus of Loney's research is to better understand neurological diseases. While a lot of progress has been made in diagnosis and treatment, there's still a long way to go for this class of disease. You know, it reminds me of a logical fallacy I hear from time to time. People will remark how some particular fatal condition is on the rise. In some situations, the data on cause of death changes as diagnosis and specificity of answer are improved. But in other cases, on the surface, it does look like a statistical change. Rates of certain fatalities do increase from time to time. Sometimes that's causal and sometimes it's not. As a species, we've had a few really good wins at eliminating certain things. Smallpox, I believe, is completely eliminated. Polio has been all but eliminated through immunization, although the anti-vaccination movement has successfully reintroduced this condition in growing numbers. As you eliminate one cause of death, something else is going to fill the void. I believe there's many things I take for granted as well. Things people hundreds and thousands of years ago died of that we don't really have to face with modern medical technology. These diseases can over time get eliminated. And when they do, something else is going to fill the vacuum. There's been huge progress and great strides in terms of curing these diseases or allowing people to live reasonably high-quality lives even with them. Yet in neurological disease, we have not been quite as successful. That's Dr. Toga again from last episode. You'll recall that he and I previously discussed how neuroimaging can provide us an atlas for the brain. Perhaps one of the biggest things that we've contributed to the field is the development of atlases, which represent subpopulations of people, so that we get patterns and trends that describe these cohorts and integrate not only across different modalities and observations, but different individuals, different research projects, and even different laboratories. And so we've really been involved with a whole range of different approaches to creating maps of brain that describe structure and function. The investments made in this area allow the generation of higher resolution data about the brain. It's similar to astronomy. When you have a better telescope, you start to see things better and then you can interpret them and you'll understand about things that we have no idea that those things exist. That's Farshid Seperband, a project specialist at Loney. I would say this may translate in MRI. If we push the resolution, we may start to see things that we had no idea about. But although we can get better resolutions using uh, microscopes, this only can be done on animal models or on postmortem brain. So to be able to image human life brain in high resolution may give us insight about microstructural properties and uh, molecular level changes of the brain that we have no idea about before. And I believe it will have great applications on early detection of neurological disorders, even on the neurodevelopment, on learning, seeing the effect of different medication, for example, how it affects the brain. Those things can be very small scale that cannot be captured with clinical imaging. 
pretty much every aspect of behavior you can study using MRI. And of course, there are limitations, you know, and what kind of studies we can do actually in the scanner, you know, we're putting people in this very enclosed space, they can maybe watch a movie, they can interact a bit. And so you can study things, you know, in that context. That's Ryan Kabeen, a postdoctoral scholar at USC Loney Lab. We can also study diseases, I think, very well with MRI because we can collect data from a very large number of people. We can combine them together to understand, you know, even if there's something very subtle happening, by looking at a large group of people, we can detect those subtle effects. And as, as far as looking at localization of effects, there's a lot of work that has tried to, to find, you know, that the brain area for X. And, you know, there are reproducible findings in that way. But, you know, one of the newer ways that people are looking at the brain is this graph theoretical object where we have a network of information flowing to different brain areas and we can characterize the topology of that. And what we're finding is that, you know, there are some diseases that actually change the topology of that network. So it may not be localized to a certain brain area, but it's really disruption at this network level. And so it does present kind of a conundrum where we have to be able to relate our much better fidelity and our capabilities today with what we could do just a few short years ago. But that's the nature of this, and it continues to evolve. And I think we have to develop strategies that allow the data to be compared or aggregated and combined in some fashion so that we can get better maps and atlases. And to that point, I think you know, a, good, a good analogy really is, is think about any other map that you might have, or any other atlas for that matter, where you might just be first looking for latitude and longitude and what's the place at those coordinates. And the place might be an intersection of a street, for example. And the same is true in brain. But upon that intersection of streets, you could then layer information that had to do with traffic density, for example, or the street light pattern, or the weather, or the sort of air pollution in that area. So you could continue to layer ever more detailed information and begin to understand the relationship between those different observations. Many researchers in computational transportation systems pose their problems with the mathematics of dynamical systems. This approach assumes a certain complexity in these systems, such that either the mechanics are not totally known, can't be measured well, or can't be efficiently computed. And I think there are some strong parallels between this and neurology. So if you think of that same strategy in trying to map the human brain, that's precisely what we do. That we use the latitude and longitude, the coordinate system, uh, to allow us to identify the anatomy, the location. And then at that location, we make all these other different observations. And 10 years ago, we might have looked at traffic patterns just as the number of cars. We might look at voxels in the brain, which are a certain size. But today, we can not only look at the, the types of cars and the numbers of them, but the braking pattern, for example, or the numbers of people that are in each car. And the same is true using modern MR equipment, that we can get much more detailed information than we could in years past. And by using the same kind of coordinate system, it enables us to integrate data that may be coarser or less informative from years ago because the technology didn't provide it with a much richer data set today because the technology is more refined. And my guess is 10 years from now, it'll even be more refined. And that's fine. We just have to be aware of that evolution in technology and make sure that the analytic strategies we create can accommodate that continued improvement. A lot of fundamental statistics was developed out of necessity for use in medical studies. If you're developing a new treatment of some kind, you want to minimize the number of participants in a study so as to limit the exposure just in case the treatment has some negative effect. 
You want statistical procedures that can detect relationships between two variables with as few observations as possible. Yet in certain ways, in the big data world, all that's turned on its head. Datasets are filled with tons of coincidences. Thus, new methodologies and techniques have emerged. At a basic level, simple things like the Bonferroni correction sometimes apply. False discovery rates are also a useful technique when confronting large datasets. And from this statistical perspective, machine learning can also be thought of as a natural extension of statistics. It's a set of tools equipped to do analysis on large datasets. I presume that's at least part of what Dr. Toga meant when he talked about analytic strategies. So I haven't done much work on using machine learning to classify diseases. So we are actually working on exploring ways to do that. But so far, I'm seeing a lot of challenges there. For example, interpretation, as you mentioned, is a big challenge. And we have a big amount of collinearity in the brain. So if you are looking at the morphological changes of the brain, you expect to see a trend in the body. Like If one part of the brain is growing, most likely other parts are growing with that as well you will see a big amount of collinearity in lateralization of the brain, left side and right side. There may be a lot of similarity. The size of the data is very big. So we are just discussed earlier that we are trying to push the resolution. But when it comes to people to handle these data sets, they actually reduce the size of the data and they just downsample to be able to handle the data computationally. And that will undermine all the efforts that we put in to push the resolution. And then sometimes the sample size problem for doing this sort of analysis. In our field, when we say we have a huge sample size, sometimes people mean like maybe thousands, couple of thousands. So it's really hard to acquire large sample sizes and then do machine learning on those. There are all these challenges that exist. But as you mentioned, understanding the mechanism and being able to interpret it, it's very challenging and also very interesting question. But there are also ways in a backward engineering type of technique that may be helpful. One study we did recently, we were trying to look at the six differences in neurodevelopment and in younger people. And we go beyond the univariate technique and use machine learning to do that. And to be able to somehow interpret it, we said we can do the inverse way. So we start with trying to predict the gender of the patient and then come back and see what are the features that let us do that. So of course, it's not an interesting thing to tell a person it's a boy or girl. There are easier ways than MRI to do that. But if there is an algorithm or a model that can look at the brain and say if that person is a boy or a girl, then looking at the most informative features of that model probably can tell the most distinguished features of the genders. But if you look at the univariate technique, there are many of potential type 1 or type 2 errors. And for example, we know brain size is bigger in boy compared to girl. And it doesn't have any biological meaning. It's just a different body size. And if there is one part of the brain that is not different in size between these two gender, it can be a very important and interesting feature to look at. But if you do a univariate analysis, you will be blind to that difference. So by using a multivariate or machine learning technique will let us to explore these kind of subtle changes in a more systematic and reproducible way. Unless you're already the most brilliant person in the whole world, there's always more to learn. Whether you're a data scientist, aspiring data scientist, or armchair listener, I bet you've got some gaps in your education. What do you need more of? Computer science? Probability? Linear algebra? Machine learning? All of the above? Consider if Brilliant.org could be an accessible way for you to learn. 
Brilliant's courses provide you with the foundations to master basic concepts like data structures and algorithms. Whether you're looking for foundational things like that, or you want to try Brilliant out just to stay fresh, there's always more courses to move on to. Artificial neural networks are a quick dive into the cutting-edge computational methods for learning. The machine learning course teaches advanced quantitative techniques to analyze data. Brilliant is fun and interactive. It's great for learning and retention. How many of you have books on your shelf that you bought with the best of intentions of reading? Brilliant is so much better than picking up a textbook. Find out for yourself by visiting brilliant.org slash data skeptics. So machine learning is not a new idea. It's been around for a while, and I'm sure it was long ago that someone suggested it somehow become a part of neurology. And I'm sure, you know, if we look through the literature, there are probably things dating back quite a ways that were good pioneering efforts. But it seems to me the impacts that are most dramatic have been happening in, you know, just the last few years. And we're on a really growth rate of how much computational aspects are coming into neurology. Do you agree? And if so, why is that happening now, not 10 years ago? Or why aren't we waiting another 10 years? Why now? Machine learning application in MRI is actually growing significantly. And it's now being used in many different parts of the analysis. Sometimes people use machine learning for reconstructing the data in a better way. Sometimes by combining modalities to come up with a better uh, map of the brain. Sometimes for doing some system level comparison between your groups of interest. For example, if you're studying Alzheimer's disease and you have a cohort of cognitively normal and Alzheimer's patient, you can let machine learning model to be trained on this data set and do some sort of data-driven analysis to find the most informative feature that is a predictor of AD, the Alzheimer's disease. Or especially on segmentation, detecting atrophies in the brain from MRI images. All these applications are really growing in the field and machine learning and deep learning is being vastly explored. I think we're reaching a point now where we understand that there's so much data for each patient that we really need help. The voice of Dr. Meng Law. I think that a lot of physicians feel that this could be a threat to their practice and to their specialty, but I see it as actually a very important uh, tool for us because it's impossible for me to interpret all this data. Plus, you know, as a patient, the reason why patients go to five different doctors is because they want, you know, the best opinion. And so why not give them that by allowing a, a machine to do the prediction? And then, you know, it doesn't matter which doctor you go to, you essentially get the same diagnosis, the same management, and hopefully the same outcome. And then we can obviously talk about some of the more humanistic parts of what's happening in healthcare, the, the art of medicine, how you talk to a patient, the emotional aspects, which obviously, you know, I think we're a long ways off from a machine being able to do that. The impression I've been given is that Alzheimer's is a disease we're making a lot of progress on, but there's still some open questions. It's not something that's going to be in the near term completely figured out and taken care of and all that sort of thing. Is there an easy way for a layperson to understand what it is that makes it a hard problem? Yeah, I think one of the problems is, is that the diagnosis and the phenotype of an Alzheimer's dementia patient has some overlap with uh, some other similar diseases. So. We're just trying to figure out what's important, how to weight each of these uh, different pieces of data and how to uh, you know, come up with the most accurate diagnosis. In fact, you know, even if you come up with an AUC or an accuracy of 90, 90% or even you know, above that, you, know, you may not have Alzheimer's. But you know, if we're going to treat you for Alzheimer's and some of the treatments can be quite devastating and have side effects, we want to be sure that you truly have Alzheimer's disease. So you had mentioned you know, that we can apply machine learning to these problems I am not a neurologist, as you probably know, but I have some sense of, you know, what medical researchers look at and what they care about and kind of some of their mathematical techniques and things like that. 
And I'm aware that, especially in medicine, people care very much about the mechanism of things. They, they want to understand why is it someone developed a disease and why is it that some treatment has a positive effect. Explanatory power is very important. But a lot of the best machine learning techniques, deep learning specifically, but even other things like I would say a lot of tree-based methods like XGBoost, they don't have very much explanatory power. They just kind of work because they work. They're data-driven, but they don't explain themselves very well. Do you find that that's true in your domain, or is there something special about this type of data or about neurology where you're able to understand the results that these more complex algorithmic approaches spit out? First and foremost, obviously, a human intelligence, or I guess some people call it traditional intelligence, are just not capable of incorporating and analyzing all these different data sets. That's the first thing. And the second thing is we all apply different strengths to a particular data sets depending on what our interests are. And then much like in machine learning and deep learning, you've taught a machine how to interpret the data. We've all been to different medical schools. We've all trained under different physicians and under different environments. And that learning process is obviously going to influence how we interpret data as well. And in the human intelligence, obviously, that's far more variable, potentially, than, you know, obviously, machine learning capabilities. But remember, we don't fully understand how the brain's intelligence systems work either. So it's just a good guess. And if it works in computer science, then it works. And the other thing is we sort of attach these labels, these sort of constructs that help us describe things that are incompletely understood, whether it's intelligence or even consciousness. And so, you know, I would ask you back a question and say, you know, when do we say that the machines gain consciousness? And again, these are sort of philosophical terms that get layered upon, you know, hard science observational things that they don't often match very well. And so I think we have to be tolerant of the differences between at least our, our machine representations of decision making and uh, intelligence or even consciousness compared to the biological ones. They may always be a little different, but that's okay. We need to embrace AI, we need to embrace machine learning and use it as a tool to help in a diagnosis. So I don't think that we'll replace radiologists because I think that there's still always going to be a need for a human component, whether it's to authorize or to agree with what a machine has done, and then to convey that to a patient in a, in a humanistic fashion. So, you know, it may be that as physicians and as radiologists and as doctors and one of the other specialties, obviously, that are going to be affected are pathologists and also dermatologists. You know, you can have a, have a machine look at the melanoma or a skin lesion now and they can do it very accurately, probably more accurately than dermatologists. So then, you know, after that, you still need to be able to speak to the patients. My hope is that as humans, if we can keep ahead of the progress and be involved with the research, then we can utilize it as a tool rather than having it replace us. I think it will be a big help for neuroradiologists and radiologists in general. I don't agree that this machine learning will take over radiologists or these types of thinking. I would say if we combine those knowledge, we will be able to make better decisions and probably free some time to spend with the patient. Currently, as far as I know, there's no way for the FDA to regulate it. It doesn't have an approach for these tools yet because... You know, we haven't verified, and we still have to figure out as a community, as a, as a group, how to verify whether uh, something is usable in the patient setting or not. And until we do that, and I'm sure the FDA are looking at means to regulate this because, you know, obviously, if you can create a product and you sell it for $100,000 to a hospital, you know, how do you regulate that it's, like, one, useful to the patient? The holy grail may be, you know, the minute you're born and the minute that we 
scan your entire body and understand the genetics and the imaging and everything else. And then the machine will predict what day you will die. Imagine that as a holy grail. Wouldn't we like to know that? But, you know, I think that we would all like to know all this information, right? In one hand, to determine how we can live healthily for as long as we can, and then predict what disease we may have. So, one, we can prevent them, or two, we can treat them earlier so that we don't you know, suffer pain and we don't suffer um, or we don't die prematurely. So, my background is in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And we have this thing we call a neural network that's actually come back kind of into its prime, even though it's an older idea in the machine learning literature. We've rebranded it as deep learning, and it's been uh, tremendously successful in a lot of problems and in industry. I'm curious, first of all, to hear how a neurologist feels about computer scientists calling a certain thing a neural network, which may not meet your definition of a neural network, and then also how your field perceives the work we're doing that's now called deep learning. I would say that deep learning is an increasingly important methodology to understand these patterns and relationships, and it's used in combination with data mining approaches, which are also computer science inventions. And so first, let me say that computer science and neuroscience have to work together uh, and do. In our own group here, I would say it's probably almost close to 50-50 in terms of the, the degrees and training of these people. But with regard to your definition of neural networks, there are a number of different types of neural networks that have been identified in brain and simple ones like, you know, visual system, well, they're not simple, but ones that have been well teased out like the visual system, for example, or the or parts of the olfactory system or retina, for example. You know, these are systems which have been explored to great detail by very famous scientists, some of whom have won the Nobel Prize, and have taught us a great deal about the organizational structure and mechanisms by which signals are processed and then subsequently interpreted by brain. And I would say that the neural networks that are used in the computer science sense don't often model those exactly. And that's okay. I think it's just the ensemble of nodes working in a way that has flexibility and adaptability as new data comes in that is a representation of perhaps how the brain works. Those are important, and my guess is we'll get ever more clever at mimicking some of the features of the brain in computer science implementations. But since we don't completely understand how the brain works, you know, we're not there yet. And it's fine to have names that have similarity because it's a way to try to continue to improve the efficiency, accuracy, and, and utility of these approaches. And as I said, we use them quite a bit in our own field. What I will tell would be my personal opinion. Of course, neural network deep learning and all of these structures are extremely simplified versions of what's happening in the brain. And in some cases, may not really be a representative of that. For example, in deep learning, you may have a node that is actually doing a function for you or doing a mini algorithm for you. But in the brain, it may be like a gate, what we call as a neuron. Or in some other cases, it may be way more complicated. The way it receives the information and output the information in the brain will be way more complicated. The scale in the brain is way larger compared to that. But I would say there is definitely similarities. And personally, I love the way the community using these terms. It makes it very interesting, shows their passion, how they're trying to think out of the box. But at the end of the day, we are trying to define our brain using our brain, which could be limited.
This is also very exciting because the industrial push for data science now and the open source spirit of that community is allowing other industries to benefit from all these advances. And I think data science and machine learning can be used in all different aspects of radiology. And in every aspect of this, there is a growing need and interest for data science and data scientists to get involved and push this industry as well. Personally, I would love to see more data scientists to join our community, but it's really hard to compete with data science industry, I would say. We in the United States have been leaders globally in scientific research and investment in the talent pool and the infrastructure necessary for us to remain competitive globally in this area. And I worry that we're losing that. All diseases clamor for money. There are limited funds, certainly. The public uh, can only afford so much. But the cost to not treating these diseases far outweighs the investment you could make in treating them. I worry that other countries have looked at the United States as a a great model to emulate and have done so so effectively that they are outpacing us. How can you not be in wonder of an organ system that sits between your ears that makes everything about you, you? You know, that's everything. Every feeling you have, every sort of emotion that you have, every memory that you have, you know, every interaction that you have, every creative output that you have. It's all there. And it, it's a wonder that that thing works the way it does. And the fact that it is just so under, under understood, I think is, um, it's amazing to me. And I think, you know, it's, it's a great privilege to be able to work on it. It's a great privilege to be able to spend your career and your lifetime trying to make discoveries about how it's organized and how it works or how it even fails, for that matter. And to me, you know, You often wonder why everybody doesn't want to get in on this, because it is just so extraordinary. But I don't know how you can impress upon the general public and how you can impress upon the every man and every woman why this is so important and and get it down to the grammar school level. But we don't do those things. There aren't campaigns. There aren't sort sort of initiatives that get this message and this excitement and this wonder into the mind of everyone. It's, I don't know how you do it, but we're not doing it yet, and we should. I like the way Dr. Toga describes that. The brain is under-understood. I'm particularly fascinated by it myself, because if we can figure out all the mechanisms of the brain, then we can almost certainly simulate one. But as was alluded to, maybe machine intelligence will emerge in some exotic way that's analogous, but hardly identical to the way our brains work. Could be. We'll revisit that idea later this year. In the meantime, as neurologists seek greater understanding of the brain, a grand theory of everything about the brain seems a ways off. Compared to that lofty goal, somewhat lower-hanging fruit seems to be found in the types of neurological disorders studied at the Loney Lab. We heard how important it will be for computer science and neuroscience to collaborate in order to make more progress. As just one example, what sort of biomarkers might machine learning be trained to detect which the average clinician could not? It does seem inevitable that more and more diagnosis work will shift to algorithms, but this doesn't seem to diminish the role of doctors and researchers. On the contrary, It's simply a more robust set of tools at a higher level of abstraction, which enable them to ask bigger and more difficult questions. 
Okay, before we sign out, I just put a new t-shirt in the Data Skeptic store. It's the new AI logo that we're using in 2018 that you've probably seen in your podcast players. Listen, everybody, we're going to be talking about AI for a few months, and then we're going to move on to something else. These new shirts are like tour shirts. Once it's over, they're out of stock forever. I want to see you guys wearing these in 10 years when I see you at conferences and stuff, so I can know that you were here way back when. Data Skeptic's going to be around. Show everybody how long you've been down. The design actually makes a pretty sweet shirt on its own, regardless of it being for this podcast. So check those out at dataskeptic.com under store. Next week, we're doing a mini on Markov decision processes. We're going to build on top of that concept in future episodes. So don't miss it, as that's going to set some foundational stuff in place. Data Skeptic is a listener-supported program. To support the show, visit dataskeptic.com and click on the membership tab.